At Baptist Health South Florida, it's our mission to care for you when you're injured or sick and help you stay healthy and fit. Welcome to the Baptist Health Talk podcast, where our respected experts bring you timely, practical health and wellness information to improve your family's quality of life. Life is all about the rhythm, especially when someone says, my heart flutters and skips a beat. There are lots of arrhythmias out there, but today we're talking about atrial fibrillation, or AFib for short. AFib is the most common arrhythmia, and it's a condition in which the heart beats with an irregular or abnormal rhythm, and it affects over 2.7 million Americans yearly. Left unattended, this can lead to strokes or even heart failure. So what causes atrial fibrillation? What can be done to avoid it and correct it if one has it before it does any damage? I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Fialco. I'm Chief Population Health Officer for Baptist Health. Here to help us explore this rhythm of life is Dr. Mario Pasquale. Mario is the Medical Director of Electrophysiology and Arrhythmia Management at Miami Cardiac and Vascular Institute and Director of its Atrial Fibrillation Program. Welcome to the podcast, Mario. Thank you very much, John. Thank you for having me. So first, uh, obviously, define atrial fibrillation and tell us what generally causes it. Sure. So atrial fibrillation, um, you know, everybody probably has a friend or family member that has it because as everybody knows, it's truly become an epidemic and it's tied on to many other things in, in this country that are continue to rise and are, are also becoming an epidemic. But, you know, the heart likes to, what we say is be in rhythm, dance in rhythm. Every time the upper chamber beats, the lower chamber should follow. And it's this very rhythmic sequence of, of, of events in the heart. When you're in atrial fibrillation, you have very disorganized electric electrical activity from the upper chambers of the heart. So you have this very chaotic electrical flow in the upper chambers of the heart. And when we talk AFib, it's never just AFib. We're talking about all the triggers that can cause it. These triggers, it can include many things such as hypertension, obesity, alcohol. And in today's world, you know, stress-induced atrial fibrillation is becoming more and more common. And it's also, uh, we should say, it's more common as one gets older. So you mentioned yeah, absolutely. that make it more common. We're an older population, and we have a lot of those medical type of uh, risks that you mentioned, right? Exactly right. And if you look, even, even above 40, one in every four people at some point in their life will develop atrial fibrillation. And once you hit the age of 65, your risk of atrial fibrillation goes up approximately fivefold and 75 even more so. So age is definitely one of those modifiers that unfortunately we cannot um, change at this yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. And it's better than the alternative. <laughs> right. yeah. so, uh, so if we know age is related and there's lots of other factors that contribute to atrial fibrillation and we know it's very common, then what's the big deal if someone feels their heart flips or flutters or speeds up a little bit, doctor could put some medications and say, now you're feeling fine. But why are we concerned about atrial fibrillation beyond just the treatment of symptoms? Sure. Um, you know, AFib can have some very serious consequences. And, and every time we see somebody with atrial fibrillation, the first thing we talk about is their, their risk of stroke and their, their modification for their stroke risk. Um, because, you know, strokes can have very dev- devastating consequences. And strokes in AFib are not your small kind of, you know, not very symptomatic strokes. They are very large strokes that can become very symptomatic where, you know, patients can lose their ability to speak or understand speech or have, you know, body weakness or really a decrease in, in, in their capacity to function. And so we always want to address their stroke risk first. 
you know, after that, we know that AFib is what we say is a progressive disease. So like many other illnesses out there, AFib is not just AFib. It is what kind of atrial fibrillation do you have? And it's really a progressive issue. The longer you have AFib, the longer you carry that diagnosis without really addressing the problem, the harder it will be to treat and the worse the outcomes will be long-term. So early identification of atrial fibrillation and making sure that you are treated appropriately for atrial fibrillation when it is first diagnosed is extremely important to predict your outcome over the next 10 years. And I think, you know, as a, as a, as a medical cardiologist for the last 30 years, certainly working with, you know, uh, you and, and, and other leaders in the space for the last multiple years, uh, I think that has been an evolution. In the past, it was, you know, treat atrial fibrillation, control the heart rate, we'll get to blood thinners in a second so they don't have the high stroke risk and leave them alone. But I, I, what you're articulating is, Staying in atrial fibrillation for a long period of time has its own consequences. So we're kind of moving towards addressing that atrial fibrillation early to determine if, what, we can get them out of AFib? I mean, what's the what, – what, when, when, when we say address it early, what does that mean? And specifically, yeah. you know, when should someone go to an electrophysiologist rather than general practitioner yeah. or even a general medical cardiologist? Yeah. Yeah, I agree, John. I think if we look over the last, you know, even 15 years, 20 years, you know, AFib has uh, become – I think a lot more complex. And instead of just giving medications, you know, we really want to use what we say is a multidisciplinary approach to AFib. I always tell my AFib patients, if I'm the only one treating your AFib, we are not doing a good job managing your atrial fibrillation because it needs multiple specialists. I need you to see a cardiologist. I need you to see a sleep doctor. I need you to follow with your primary care physician to make sure that we're not just managing your AFib, but all those risk factors that can cause atrial fibrillation. And in addition to that, I tell patients that the heart has a certain memory to it. The longer you're in atrial fibrillation, the more your heart is going to like AFib, the more what we call scarring or fibrosis is occurring within the heart that will promote more and more atrial fibrillation. So if we can keep you in sinus rhythm, the longer we can do that, the more your heart will remember what sinus rhythm is like. And there's definitely many different ways we can do that. Um, nowadays with ablation strategies where we actually go into the heart and cauterize or ablate areas within the heart that can cause AFib, the earlier we do ablations within that process, the better the long-term outcomes. If we do an ablation within the first kind of year of a patient's diagnosis, we know in five years there's a 90% chance, as long as we address all the other risk factors for AFib, that that patient will remain in normal sinus rhythm. If we let it go for longer than a year or that patient remains in atrial fibrillation for long periods of time, that success rate is quickly dropping. And again, it's because of that memory, that scarring and that fibrosis. So addressing AFib is no longer many times just medications, but actually having to arrest or stop the issues that are promoting the atrial fibrillation within the heart. So I think that's that kind of the crossroads right. You just hit that uh, uh, on the nail on the head. And again, I do want to get into a couple of the questions for the listeners about the, the stroke risk and anticoagulation and stuff. But you know, the the, the 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 idea is that when people start with AFib, they might go in and out of it. It might be relatively infrequent, and that's the time when you want to be most aggressive to address it because it generally mm-hmm. will become more frequent and eventually become persistent, and eventually the scarring. So the downstream consequences cannot always be avoided if you deal with it later. Is that, I mean, that's my yeah. perception, how I treat it with my patients. Is that yep. a fair statement? That, that, that's, a, that's exactly right. And, um, you know, I, I hate to use this analogy, but it's used often. And a lot of patients come to me. But, um, you know, AFib is 
is almost like a stage. There's a staging to it. And, you know, stage one, let's say, is, is paroxysmal coming in and out. Stage two is being in it for up to a year. And stage three is longer than a year. And each type of atrial fibrillation will have different outcomes and different procedural interventions. And, and, and catching it early when a patient's still going in and out of it on their own is our best success rate. By far, by far. So you mentioned an ablation procedure, which also has evolved over decades. Um, you know, outpatient procedure now, it's, it's uh, you know, something that uh, is, is relatively, if not very low risk. Um, is that kind of, because some people will say, ah, I don't want a procedure, I feel okay. Talk a little bit in your practice and when people refer to you, first place, not everyone gets the ablation, but what's the thinking about why you would take someone who might feel okay at that moment and say, let's do a procedure um, when they're thinking, hey, but I, but I feel okay. What's what's the sure. what's the rationale? And then talk a little bit, about, obviously, about the safety of the procedure. Yeah, absolutely. And and um, you know, I think the indications for the AFib ablation will continue to expand. And and the reason for that is is just like you said, is safety. Our ablations have never been safer. And number two, our outcomes have never been better. And when you have a safer procedure with better outcomes, at that point, you can expand indications as long as there's a good outcome associated with it. And so many times patients will, you know, feel okay, but you really have to address with the patient because the symptoms of AFib can be very subtle. And so if a patient is usually, you know, able to walk a mile and they feel okay and they do in about 15 minutes, all of a sudden they have AFib and it takes them 20 minutes to do. Well, that's a subtle symptom of AFib. And if you allow that AFib to continue to to progress in a year, it's going to be a mile and 25 minutes. The next year it's going to be a mile and 30 minutes. And that is usually when a patient's developing symptoms such as heart failure. So the longer patients remain in AFib, the larger chance they have of that upper chamber or the atrium to enlarge that patient's going into heart failure. And we know that in patients with heart failure, getting them back in normal rhythm has much better long-term associated outcomes. So as you say, we can use medications to make people asymptomatic or very minimally symptomatic, but that can fool them to think that the AFib doesn't have a consequence downturn. So let's just, uh, let's move to a couple of other questions I think the, uh, the viewers may have. So we mentioned the stroke risk, which is the main early driver of the concerns of AFib, um, though heart failure becomes uh, certainly prominent uh, the longer someone has AFib. Um, first, what's the mechanism of stroke and atrial fibrillation? It's a little different than the general population who might have what we'd call an ischemic stroke. So you speak a little bit what the relationships with AFib and, and stroke. Sure, sure. Yeah, when you have atrial fibrillation, you know, like we spoke earlier, the, the upper chambers are very chaotic. They're very disorganized. They're fibrillating. And um, that's where the term comes from. And when you have fibrillation, you have very poor emptying of blood from the atrium. You have kind of circulating blood flow. And this circulation of blood flow and, you know, very poor emptying or inadequate emptying of the atrium can promote blood clotting. And, um, you know, again, these are not small strokes. These are large strokes because as that blood swirls, it tends to form pretty large blood clots. And there's one specific area within the left atrium called the left atrial appendage where the vast majority of strokes will form because within this little appendage or earlobe within the heart, that's where you have the poorest uh, blood flow. And so you have large, large uh, blood clots forming within the heart. If they would still, if they would stay there and not go anywhere, really wouldn't be a problem. We'd be okay. But the problem is they shoot off into other areas and they go off into the brain and cause big strokes. And that's where really we start to having big issues with, uh, with atrial fibrillation. Exactly. And then you said it several times, it's a blood clot in the heart that travels to the brain 
as opposed to a small blood vessel in the brain that might clot off. So the strokes tend to be bigger, more yeah. debilitating. Uh, and, that, and that's why yeah. we take it very seriously. Now, let's in a sense reassure um, the, the, the listeners. So if someone has atrial fibrillation or discovers it, let's say in an Apple Watch or something like that, yeah. Does that mean they're going to have a stroke in five minutes? So how do we no. how do we stratify the stroke risk, and then what do we do yeah. if they have a high stroke risk? Yep, absolutely. So we we have a, a risk calculator where we look at the patient's risk factors um, for stroke in atrial fibrillation, and you know. Stroke in AFib is not as simple as, as we just described it. Like anything in medicine, it has much many more aspects to it. And, you know, just like there's risk factors for development of atrial fibrillation, those same risk factors usually will promote blood clotting and what we call hypercoagulable, an increased ability to form blood clots in, in the individual. And so if we, you know, calculate their risk and initiate medical therapy, we can decrease their risk of stroke to less than 1%. And the other way I like to reassure patients is that there's no direct relationship with AFib. Patients um, are under the impression that as soon as you go to atrial fibrillation, you know, the clock starts, blood clots are forming, and you're going to have a stroke. And, and it's very much not like that. Um, you know, the correlation between your, your episodes of AFib and your stroke risk are usually within the first 30 to 45 days. So it is not, you know, something that happens immediately. So when you have AFib, you have time to reach, to contact your doctor, talk to him about different options understand truly, you know, what you want to do and how to best manage your AFib before going ahead and making that decision. Yeah. And we, we try to get the people in right away. A lot of times people come to either primary care doctor's office and say, oh, by the way, you're in AFib. They don't need it. No reason to send to the emergency room. It's get them into a cardiologist's office if you're not going to, or, you know, manage the anticoagulation. Once the patient is given the anticoagulation, at least as a, a time we could say, all right, now what are we going to do? We got exactly. time. But that would be that's the, the urgent thing. So, um, so you, you kind of alluded to it before. Uh, when in the disease continuum or the care continuum okay. should the patient see an electrophysiologist when they've been diagnosed with episodes of atrial fibrillation? Yeah. So, you know, again, that, that changing philosophy. <clears throat> and nowadays, I think, you know, the EP community will say the earlier, the better. Um, because, you know, electrophysiology and management of AFib is, is now really discussing you know, not just what AFib is, but, you know, what's causing the AFib and what are the treatment options. And we can really educate patients that maybe many of them will not have requirements or the need for an ablation at this point, but we can talk to them about AFib is progressive. These are the signs to look for. And once this happens, this is really a, a strong indication to proceed with an ablation. We can also talk about stroke risk and we can talk about risk factor modification. You know, why do you have to see a sleep doctor if you have atrial fibrillation? Why is it so important to lose weight and change your diet if you have atrial fibrillation? And how do those risk factors contribute to keeping you in sinus rhythm for long periods of of time. Those asymptomatic patients that have some heart failure, I feel okay. Why do I need an ablation? What, you know, what, how is this going to help me? So the earlier we, we are able to see these patients, the better the long-term outcomes. And again, it's not just talking ablations anymore. It's really talking about how are we going to have your best outcome over the next five to 10 years? Yeah. Again, I think that's uh, well said. It's, it's the programmatic approach we have. It's not just take this pill, see in six months, We'll go on this anticoagulant see in six months, or you get an ablation, no, don't need to see you. It's a true holistic evaluation of the patient trying to make them healthier and especially control mm -hmm. the AFib, which I think is uh, unique. Um, and the other thing I just want to say is, uh, you know, I'll say to patients, you have this, and this is what it is. And, you know, I, I do a lot of hypereducation, but I want you to let your physiologist, why? I don't want an ablation. And I'm like, well, no one wants an ablation. <laughs> you right. know, that's like, yeah, right. I want ablation. But the reality is, it's not necessarily to get an ablation, it's to get this high level assessment. 
And whatever the treatment plan is based on what the patient wants, we'll follow, but let's make sure that we're not dropping a ball and missing anything. So again, I've got credit to our electrophysiologists. And I think, uh, I think electrophysiologists are underutilized in the community where a lot of doctors try to manage atrial fibrillation, which they can from a symptomatic standpoint, Mm -hmm. but they're missing the long-term consequences, which, uh, which is what we're dealing with here. Um, last two questions. Um, Talk a little bit about, you know, the atrial appendage closure devices. Uh, they're mm-hmm. gaining some steam and, you know, where, where we use those and where appropriate, what they are and where we use those. Yeah. So, um, you know, AFib and stroke risk, it's, it's our biggest concern. Um, and the vast majority of patients will be able to tolerate anticoagulation and uh, tolerate it very well. These are overall extremely safe medications. But unfortunately, there's a population of patients that will either have, you know, continued and elevated bleeding risk with anticoagulation. And so, you know, a few years ago, our only option was stop the anticoagulation. But clearly, we don't like that option because these patients are then at risk of stroke. So we have our bleeding risk. And then they they do have strokes. And they do have strokes and large strokes. And, um, you know, fortunately, over the last several years, we've, we've developed a procedure intervention that's called the left atrial appendage occlusion or closure. Within the left atrium, which is where AFib derives, there's a little earlobe structure called the appendage, and you have very poor blood flow within that appendage. And this is where the vast majority of strokes, you know, some trials show about 90% of strokes are, are going to occur. And so nowadays we have a little closure device that looks like a little mesh where we can, you know, percutaneously with an axis through the growing, put a little mesh within that little appendage and we essentially seal it off. And so if you look at patients that have that left atrial appendage closure device and compare it to patients that are blood thinners, the stroke risk is about the same. So now you're protecting, you're protecting those patients that have the left atrial appendage closure and they're not at bleeding risk because they're off the anticoagulation. And this is a procedure now, it's usually done in less than an hour. It's extremely safe. Risk of of that procedure are less than 1%. And over 99% of patients are able to stop their anticoagulation at 45 days after that uh, procedure. And we do offer it. We do it well. Um, we do. We want yeah. people to realize it's not necessarily the first choice. Usually you want to have some reasons to not be able to take anticoagulation. They've been long and well established for many years, but we may move into the space where this becomes the first <laughs> first line yeah. treatment down the road. So yeah, my, second, my last question to you is, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah there's, there's the definitely a lot way. of patients that are pushing for uh, left atrial yeah. appendage occlusion as, as a lifestyle choice. And, you know, if yeah, you have a high right, risk profession right. or, you know, you like to get, you know, you know, hunt and, yeah. you know, the, the, the patients are pushing for it. And I think yeah. that indication we, we may, may open at, up. And we are looking at the economic costs. It's an expensive procedure, but the lifelong therapy of anticoagulation and inherent other things might offset mm-hmm. that. So more exactly. to come on that. So that actually was part of my last question, which you kind of addressed, which is what's What's going forward? What's new happening in the AFib space? What kind of yeah. research is going on? Where do you see, where do you get excited about what, you know, what, yeah, what's yeah. happening in this space? Yeah. Um, you know, AFib seems like it's getting more and more complex, but, 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 you know, almost easier um, it, as we look into the future. And when I say more complex is there's more and more procedures being offered. We're looking at different strategies to really go into the heart and cauterize. And we're even looking at new energy sources. So, you know, procedures where we used to need heat energy, we're looking at different types of, of interventions we can do that will be safer with better outcomes and shorter procedure times. And that's, you know, that's coming in the next two to three years. We also have a certain population of patients that no matter how many ablations we do, 
they're not going to respond and we're not going to be able to treat it. And so that takes us to the next step where we can offer at, um, at MCVI, Miami Cardiac and Vascular, hybrid ablation um, in order to treat their atrial fibrillation. So, you know, people don't realize the heart is a three-dimensional structure. There's a portion that inside, there's a middle, and there's an outside. And when we do ablation, we're predominantly ablating or cauterizing the inside of the heart. With a hybrid ablation, now we can kind of sandwich that tissue. We ablate from the outside, we can ablate from the inside, and really have better long-term data, long-term outcomes in, in, in terms of uh, procedural success rates for these patients. Um, we're also looking at different types of anticoagul anticoagulants that will be safer to take with decreased stroke risk. Um, so, you know, we talk about AFib and, you know, right now I think we're, we're going through an epidemic, but hopefully, you know, in the future, we're really going to start talking curative uh, procedures for atrial fibrillation as opposed to just, um, you know, controlling their AFib. And Mara, we could do a whole podcast on this, but I'd remiss if I didn't ask one more question. Let's talk uh, just briefly about, you know, and, and I think you and I are aligned in this, the Apple Watch and, and people, yeah. asymptomatic healthy people picking up what may be atrial fibrillation on the watch. Talk about the pros and cons of that as you see it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, as an electrophysiologist, I think early detection is always key. And so if we can get an accurate diagnosis on an Apple Watch of somebody with atrial fibrillation, I, I think it's fantastic because as we've talked all, all the entire podcast earlier, we find AFib the better the long-term outcomes and we can decrease their, their risk. But it's not perfect. And we have to realize there's about a fa false positive rate of about 12%. So if we diagnose atrial fibrillation through an Apple Watch, we always want to confirm that with maybe kind of more better studied um, methods of, of diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. And if you purchase an Apple Watch, it's, I think it's a great purchase, but always have a treatment plan. And always, you know, it's not just kind of blandly buying an Apple Watch. You, you diagnose AFib and it leads to all this distress. Have a plan. Talk to the primary care physician saying, hey, I'm, I'm you know, buying an Apple Watch. If, if it finds AFib, what's my next step? What should I do? How do I actually store an EKG? We can't just you know, listen to the Apple Watch saying this is AFib. We actually need a tracing of it. So how do I do a tracing? Who do I email it to? How, how can I really identify if this is atrial fibrillation or not and discuss the, the appropriate treatment plan with the primary care physician? So again, Mario, um, atrial fibrillation is not going away anytime soon. Aging population, more overweight population, a lot of other inflammatory comorbidities like sleep apnea, sleep disorders, diabetes, uh, hypertension. So they contribute to atrial fibrillation. And now we're also dealing with an earlier detection with technology tools like like Apple Watches. So I think uh, you and our team are going to be very busy for a long time. Yeah. Um, yeah. So th thanks again for the work you're doing at the Baptist Heart and Vascular and the Electrophysiology Department and the Atrial Fibrillation Center. And um, to our listeners, if you like what you've heard on this or any of our other podcasts, please be sure to tell a friend or family member about us. If you have any comments or suggestions for a future topic, Please email us at baptisthealthtalk at baptisthealth.net. That's baptisthealthtalk at baptisthealth.net. We'd love to hear from you, and thanks for listening. Find additional valuable health and wellness information on our resource blog at baptisthealth.net slash news. And be sure to interact with us on our social media channels for live and upcoming events. This podcast is brought to you by Baptist Health South Florida, healthcare that cares.